We live in a time when there is a, a growing and ever-growing fascination with all that is new and improved. Just uh, go outside any Apple store or Samsung store when a new product is about to be released and people queue up for a couple of days in advance to get the newest and the latest. Our society seems to be enamoured by new things, the new model cars and new this and new that. This is all obviously part of a very clever marketing approach, a marketing campaign urging us to, to get the latest, the latest phone, iPad, the coolest, the biggest, the lightest, the brightest, etc. At the same time, however, there is a growing trend to buy that which is collectible, old, antique. There are antique shows, car restoration shows, which are my favourite, house renovation shows, which might be your favourite. There are treasure hunters who, uh, across the US, they go looking into old farms and old barns and sheds with metal detectors and dig for relics from the Civil War for cannons and guns and tools and other stuff that they might be able to sell and take to a museum. But part of, and then there are other guys who are going to looking for the ultimate barn find. Like, wouldn't it be fantastic to find in a collectible XYGT phase three type of thing that nobody has thought about and just, it's worth a million bucks today and just, it's a barn, it's, it's been there and used as a, as a chicken coop. You know, that, that'll be the ultimate, wouldn't it? And then there are people who go and explain the history of that which they found, how it worked, the period, the time, what it was used for, what the little things and, on, on these little gadgets on this thing were used for. And then they try and make some money from it, obviously. There's a piece of history. Every time you read the Bible, I wonder if we approach it in the same way. That the Bible is God's treasure trove of wisdom, of teaching, commands, a story of God dealing with his people along a journey and people come and people go and each one has a story to tell and each one, as we saw last week, it's like that, that relay race where the, the baton is handed over to the next runner and we saw how Abraham handed the baton to Isaac and then there will come a time when Isaac has to give his to his sons. But it's all God's work. It all, it's all God's History, it's his story with his people. Now this morning I would like to dig a treasure of someone who did some digging of his own and see what we can learn in the process. So we continue our series in the book of Genesis and uh, we're looking at the, the life of Isaac, that's where we're at. When you think about it, he lived his first few years under the shadow of his great father Abraham. 
Then he's lived his life in the shadow of his son Jacob. Abraham, you see, is the star of about 14 chapters in Genesis and Jacob is the central figure in about 12. But Isaac Isaac is only featured in a a handful of of, of chapters where we are allowed a glimpse into the the life and work of this, this man. So in in many ways we cannot help but compare him to his father because as they say, the the, the fruit never falls too far from the tree. So let's look at some of the things that he managed to learn from his famous dad. The first heading would be that he did better than dad. Verses 1 to 6. And we pick it up from verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, and the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you. Some lessons in life we learn rather quickly. We learn them from others' mistakes. We see something happening on the news and the police chase happening and all that type of stuff and I say, gee, I hope I never get caught or do something as stupid as that. And so that's a lesson for you. You're sort of saying to yourself, that's not going to be me. In verse 1, we are reminded that his father had gone through the same testing some time before. And even though Abraham was a mighty man of faith, he failed the test. He failed this test and he failed a couple of others. He made a mess of things. Abraham, you see, doubted whether God could keep him safe and his family and so off he went, taking everything, his household and everything, and went down south to Egypt. When Isaac is challenged and the famine comes, the time of testing, that is what the famine represents. For you it might not be a famine, but a time of testing will come, those difficult days. What will you do? What did Isaac do? Would he follow the example of his old man and trust in Egypt, trust in the River Nile, which was the, the most fertile place on the planet and the delta and all of that? Or would he trust in the promises of God to provide for them to provide even in the middle of a devastating drought that the whole countryside was going through. And as he ponders this, God appears to Isaac and exhorts him, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land where I tell you to live. And then we read, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. He did exactly what God had told him to do. He remains within the boundaries, on the edge of the boundary, but within the boundary of the promised land rather than go outside of the boundary. He doesn't go down to Egypt. He doesn't, he doesn't follow his dad's way of finding food and water. He decides to believe God's promises, 
to stay within the boundary of God's promise. When times are hard, isn't there always a temptation to run somewhere else? Don't we go through this conversation in our mind, in our head, anywhere has to be better than this, anywhere. It's like you imagine yourself walking to the airport and just give me a ticket anywhere. Antarctica will do. So the question is, why not remain within the boundaries of God's promise? The God who looked after you in the past will surely look after you now. The feelings come and the feelings go, but the promises of God remain. He doesn't change. It is here, it is here in that moment of testing that God calls you to be patient. He calls you to persevere because he's trying he's, he's, to, to get you to understand that his will is perfect in every way. He's trying to strengthen you. If you resist, if you run away, you're going to fail the test. It is there within the boundaries of God's promise where you will be rewarded, where your witness will be the greatest, where you will be most effective in God's will. And there Isaac found the blessing. The second thing we look, well, the first one was he was better than dad, in that respect, here in verses 7 to 11 we see that he was just like dad. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say she's my wife, he thought, men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. While some lessons in life we learn quickly, other lessons we don't learn at all. Knuckleheads, basically. Over and over and over and over again and you still don't get it. You read this and you say to yourself, here we go again. He appeared to be doing so well, relying on God's promises to be with him and bless him. He exceeded his father's faith, at least in that, when he, he reproduced one of his, you know. But here, he reproduces one of his father's less desirable actions. He doubts and fears and tells the people of Gerar, the Philistines, that Rebekah is his sister. Incredible, isn't it? God had told him that he will be with him and yet here he is afraid of the Philistines. If God is with you, what are you going to be scared of? If God is with us, who can be against us? The Apostle Paul will say. Because by declaring that it's actually his sister rather than his wife, he's, he's basically offering his 
wife to the men of Gerar, saying that she belongs to no man, she's available. The similarities between the sin of Isaac and the sin of his father, uh, this episode, it just seems that there's a lot of comparison, so much so that some of the biblical critics have said that this is just a photocopy of the other episode. They just changed a couple of things and it's just exactly the same. I don't believe that. Because sin just tends to reproduce. The sins of the fathers tend to catch up. Both, you see here, sinned in the presence of Abimelech and both are rebuked by a non-believer, by the ruler of the Philistines. Both had a beautiful wife, feared for their own safety, thinking they might be killed so they could they just let somebody else basically take their wife if they wanted to. Both lied by saying their wife was their sister. And in spite of Isaac's deception, God poured his blessings upon him. Nothing else it proves as Isaac he really is a son of his father. It is the nature of living in a fallen world that children will sometimes continue the sins of the fathers. And the sins of the children will always find an excuse. I grew up in a home where such and such used to happen, so that's the reason. I grew up in a violent home, that's why I'm a violent person. And so all the behaviours are suddenly sociologically explained, caused by environment, by upbringing and society and everything else. Nothing is ever your fault. It's always somebody else's. And yet, we want to go all the way back. We, really, we can really go to Adam and Eve, can't we? They're the ultimate mum and dad who failed us. Stephen, as he was getting stoned, no, not smoking pot, but really stoned, he said this in Acts chapter 7, you stiff-necked people. He wasn't being very nice, unfortunately. That's why he's getting all these rocks on him. He just went through this whole history and, and basically coming to the summary. This is the lesson, guys. You stiff-necked people, you with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Resist the work of God. This is what you're like. In some ways, the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. Yes, I hope you realise by now that your forefathers, your fathers even, were not perfect men. By this I want to say that old does not necessarily mean good or perfect. That's what I mean. But that doesn't take away the fact that we need to respect and honour them. But if you're expecting sinless perfection from your fathers, 
no, it's not going to happen. One thing we need to do is to learn from their examples and learn even more from their mistakes. Especially when they're honest with us and they come and tell us, I messed up. And, and, and certainly not justify your own behaviours and blaming them for your current predicament, whatever that is. Remember that each one of us, each and every one of us is individually and personally responsible and accountable to God for our every action. Every one of us. No excuses. You will not stand before the throne of God and blame your mum, blame your dad, blame Malcolm Turnbull, Donald Trump or everybody else for your predicament. Each one of us will stand before God giving an account for our actions. But what about learning from Dad? Our third option here from verses 12 to 33, pretty much this is what happens. Learning from Dad. So we read from verse 15 to 18. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and camped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. And Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham where the Philistines stopped up after Abraham died and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Some we learn quickly, some lessons that is we learn quickly, some we don't learn and some it just takes time and patience and eventually it will sink in, sink in to our kids and you just hope that that's what can happen. Isaac finds himself in the land of the Philistines in the middle of a drought as we have talked during the time of Abimelech and whether this is the same Abimelech in the time of Abraham or whether it's, it's just a, a title like a pharaoh, that type of thing, we don't know, it's up for debate. And during his time in his land, the Lord prospered him. He's doing well. Verse 13 tells us that he becomes very great. And everyone around him was going broke. Everyone was getting desperate starving to death. In the middle of all of that, Isaac prospered. His flocks and herds just grew and grew and the flocks and herds of the others starved and died. It seemed like Isaac just had the golden touch, didn't it? And the people of the world would probably just say, that's just good luck, isn't it? These people looked upon Isaac and wondered, how does he do it? Like, honestly. But the fact of the matter is this. God was blessing him. Is that so unbelievable? That God was blessing him. Isaac wasn't a better farmer than the other farmers. 
The others had more knowledge of the land. They had been there longer. He didn't have more, he didn't know more about agriculture and, and, and cattle herding and all of that. What was the difference? It was God. It was God. And there, and it's God that translated into the blessings in his life when everybody else was experiencing defeat. So what happens? As this happened in your life and it's happened in my life, when you're experiencing God's blessing, people become envious. The king asked him to move on. Remember the peace treaty with Abraham between Abimelech and the descendants? What happened to that treaty? That was a peace treaty, wasn't it? So much for that. Because it's important for us to understand this because it tells us that no matter how much we prosper, no matter how great we become, the enemy will always try to get to us. Always. Always. And the Philistines, if you read the Bible, the Philistines and the Israelites have always had this uneasy relationship. So much so that the Philistines are seen as a type of or, or, and shadow of the enemy, the, the constant enemy, the, the devil himself. And that relationship or animosity sort of came all the way back here. And the Middle East is renowned for many things, of course. That is conflict and the other one is a shortage of water. There aren't many rivers and creeks. In fact, a lot of the creeks are very seasonal. And if you dug a well and found water, it was, it was worth so much sustaining life. And so if you found a well, all the area, all the land around it became that much more valuable. So there was conflict between the servants of Abraham and the herdsmen of the Philistines and Abraham would dig a well and the Philistines would try to claim it for their own. They find water and the, and the others would come and, no, no, that's ours, that's mine. It's like the kids in a playground. No, they, they, you get this cool, that's mine. You go around, no, that's mine. Everybody wants to claim it for their own. So Abraham would go to another location and dig another well and the same thing would happen. So we can see that rather than recognise the claim of Abraham on the land, the Philistines sought to wipe it out by filling up the wells with dirt and rock and junk and everything else that Abraham dug. They, think about this, they would rather fill in a well an asset of great value in such an arid land than to allow this claim to remain unchallenged. That is envy. That is sabotage. Because you cannot understand, you cannot help, you cannot just simply watch God bless somebody else, you have to do something about it. That cannot possibly be true. Because what they have, I want. And if I can't have it, I'm going to destroy what they have. 
Be very, very careful of the envy factor. The covetousness, the tenth commandment. Be very careful, my brothers and sisters. It is hideous in a capitalist society like the one we live. So what does Isaac do here as he pushed and he's getting pushed outward? What he did is he had his servants go and redig the wells that his father originally had dug and start removing all the, the dirt and the rocks and the stones and everything else clear them up so they could eventually find the water, the rich, beautiful water, the life-sustaining water that was underneath at the bottom. So what are the benefits of clearing the old wells? Let's look at this and then draw some applications. Well, first of all, it was a proven source in the past it was a proven source in the past. He knew that these wells had produced fresh water in years gone by. They had proven themselves to be reliable over time. Why, if they had given water in the past, if they had sustained life in the past, why could they not do the same now? Because the guesswork is taken out. The location is settled. That's where it is. You just got to dig it up. Why? What's another reason? It would be less work. Think about it. Digging something from completely nothing would be harder. There is the element of uncertainty because you don't really know if you're going to start digging. You start digging and five metres down you're going to hit this big humongous rock, what are you going to do? You're stuck. You have to start again. Suddenly you have to make a decision. Do we continue digging, start a new well and so on and so forth and you move to the next, to the next. And then you might actually dig deep enough and you still don't find any water. Where do you stop? All the while, the animals can't wait. They're getting thirsty your servants, your animals, everybody, they, they need to drink. So it's much less work if you know what's underneath. All you've got to do is dig it up. What's another benefit of clearing the old wells? It provided a connection with the past. I think... Where do I get this from? I think there is something significant about the fact that he kept the same names of the wells that his father Abraham had given them. Do you notice that, verse 18? He is connecting with his father here, with his past, with his heritage. He is saying, if this worked for dad, it's got to work for me. He kept the same names. Why rename it? Just keep the same name. And as he walked through these plains and as he camped around these worlds, I am sure, I am more than sure, certain that the, the memories will be flooding back about the time that he spent with his father. 
in those camp spots, in those places. And the words that his father Abraham would have told him is was growing up into a man and the responsibilities that he would be taking on. And as he walked, he would be remembering all the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God that never failed. And God's promise to Abraham is now God's promise to Isaac and to his descendants. He was owning that. The fourth reason of clearing the old wells is that it sent a message to the enemy. It was actually strife in Isaac's life. Strife, persecution from the enemy, the hard times that caused him to decide to go and redig the wells that his father had dug before. If he was doing really well somewhere else, there would be no need to come back and redig these wells. The enemy who had filled the wells out of jealousy for God's blessing on, on, on Abraham. But in the end, God's blessings continue. All that he had to do was clear out the rubble and the gunk and find that the water is still there, it's still flowing, it's still fresh, it's still beautiful. The enemy absolutely hates it when we don't give up. When we stand up and we fight. When we defy him in the name of our God. When we stand our ground. The enemy hates it when we believe God's promises. When we believe God's word. The enemy hates it when we continue labouring, persevering. There's a big word for today. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, what's the proper time when God says so? At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if, what's the condition? If we don't give up, if we do not give up. Because you might give up, at the wrong time, just when you're about to hit the good stuff and bang. Why did you quit? Don't give up. Now I'm going to draw some applications from history, make some connections because of the interesting times, the challenging times in which we live, the spiritual wells in history. Church history tells us that in times of spiritual turmoil, that God has called his people to redig the wells that those who have gone before us have dug. Many of these wells have been filled up by the devil, the enemy, and his cohorts, and we see evidence of that everywhere today. They have been stopped up, filled up with rubbish in order to steal our strength, to rob us of blessings, to take away our joy and to give us a sense that we've been defeated. 
They are things that our father, our fathers have laboured for, have given their life for. And now suddenly Satan comes because apparently Satan, is, this is the only time when he works in the 21st century, he's never done anything before. Suddenly Satan appears and tells us that what we have now is of no value, it is out of date, it is a relic, outdated, mumbo-jumbo. But you see, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? If we will dig these wells again, like Isaac, we will find sustenance, life-giving water that is still flowing underneath. What we need to do is clear the gunk, clear the rubble. And the challenge has always been the same. The only thing that changes is the intensity of the battle. Very quickly, remember that the Christian church began in a civilization, a culture, an empire that was totally antagonistic and hostile towards the gospel. They put Jesus on a cross and all but one of his disciples were murdered for their faith. In 306 AD, however, Constantine, the emperor, the Roman emperor, placed on the shield of his Roman legionnaires the cross of Christ and underneath wrote this caption on each one of those shields, in this sign we conquer. The Christian religion became an accepted faith of the culture and the civilised world. It became institutionalised. That became the death knell for a thousand years, a dark period of faith and practice. But the light was never fully extinguished, of course. God's work will continue in different places, in different times. Until about 500 years ago, God used a man named Martin Luther to bring about the Reformation. Obviously, there were others before him, but let's just talk about Martin Luther. And this year, this year marks 500 years since the start of those tumultuous times which he lived. And he wrote a few hymns, but here is just one of the hymns that he wrote, and this is just one of the verses, but it it tells you of what he was going through, okay? It says, it says this, and I'll quote, God's word for all their craft and force, one moment will not linger, but spite of hell shall have its course, tis written by his finger. And though they take our life, goods, honour, children, wife, yet is their profit small, these things shall vanish all, the city of God remaineth. Well, that's what the enemy was doing. Taking your house, your kids, your wife, your own life. Today, we try and do away with everything to do with the Reformation and the uh, the benefits that we have enjoyed as a society. What Luther and then Calvin and Zwingli brought back life into the church 
it, it wasn't just the church, society at large was change. Democracy, freedoms, respect for human life, the way that government elections were held, all of this stuff was a, a result of the Reformation. The way the councils work and laws are enacted. And all that, all that these reformers did is they took the church back to its gospel roots. They redug the old wells from the early church and saw the richness, the beauty of the waters they're in. What is the present challenge? Obviously, I've given you only a very small glimpse, but there is a lot that we can learn from studying history, isn't there? When we know what has happened in the past, we are able to avoid the mistakes that others have made. We can hope to build upon the good things that our forefathers have discovered, the sacrifices they made. Yet we see today a very deliberate effort. It's actually, with regards to history, it's actually called revisionism. In its worst form, it wants to rewrite actual events, rewrite history, like those who go around today trying to deny the Holocaust that it ever happened. That's in its worst form. At its best, certain events that have happened in the past are judged and reinterpreted by current culture and understanding and therefore some of the things are now condemned. But this is, this is hideous. Who told you to do this? To go and, 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 and hide and, and destroy all those, dismantle all those things upon which our society, all those pillars upon which our society has been built. For example, the, the considered effort to remove the Ten Commandments from public buildings in the US. That's just one example. To separate everything that our constitution is built upon, upon a Christian base, and, and do away and rewrite it and, and, and get a new understanding, trying to separate and remove Christianity from it. In a great sense, each generation will need to stand up for what they believe. Each generation. Most of the challenges come from the same source. It just looks a little bit different, but it's from the same enemy, the old enemy. Whether it's the Philistines, whether it was the Pharisees, whether it's all the the lefties and the righties and everybody else. But in some ways the challenge we face is unique. Never, ever in the history of civilization has there been a challenge to the family structure. That marriage is between a man and a woman. Never in the history of civilization. Never, ever in the history of civilization. Has there been an attempt to redefine 
of what makes a man and a woman. Everybody thought that it was quite obvious. But now we are being told that it is fluid. This is what we're facing. It's the same enemy. And the enemy will not relent. It will try to keep filling up the old wells of salvation, keep stoning anybody who makes any attempt to start clearing the old wells and take the territory that we have gained with so much sacrifice. And yet we have to keep digging and redigging. In times of drought, we will know, we will find out, we'll be convicted of the fact that these are the sources of living water that have sustained life in the past. Why will they not sustain life today as well? Let me finish with the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 12 verses 2 to 3. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. With joy, in the midst of the challenge, okay, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we come before you, we are challenged by your word. Our hearts are stirred in a way that makes us realise what a glorious saviour we have. You are the same, you never change, your love is constant. And yet, Lord, forgive us when we seek to drink from other wells, from other sources that are inevitably contaminated. But Lord, help us to come back again and again to the well of salvation. You, our Lord and Saviour. In Jesus' name, Amen.